Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, it's a special one. Um, this is something I'm doing to, to shout about something that War Child are doing. And who better to have on to uh, discuss what's going on with their new release uh, than, than War Child's very own Jim Banner. Now, I've known Jim a long time. Um, our history goes back to um, XFM and events. And he's an absolutely wonderful human being. So you're in for a real treat today. Um, we're going to talk about the, the new record that... Uh, the new Christmas record that Warchild are putting out. We'll, we'll go right into that. Trust me, we'll kick off with that. Um, and then we get into Jim's incredible journey uh, in music, um, starting off in the States and ending up uh, in London. And it's it's a wonderful chat with a wonderful human being. Uh, and it's coming your way very soon. If this is your first time listening, uh, then when you get to the end of this chat with Jim, go check out the back catalogue because there's 350 episodes with all your favourite musicians, actors, DJs, producers, comedians. Go, go have a rummage in the archives when uh, you get to the end of this chat with Jim. Um, and also a few thank yous. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and everyone at the Distraction Pieces Network. Uh, thank you to 76 for producing this. And thanks to you lot for continuing to support this podcast throughout 2021. Uh, and yeah, and, and right the way up to now, Christmas. So uh, yeah, have a happy Christmas and please enjoy it. Off the Beat and Track podcast with the wonderful Jim Banner. Sorry, I've interrupted the podcast, but with good reason. Hotel Chocolat are our sponsors. You know that now because I tell you about it every episode. But they've been super kind now. And you may have heard me talking about the products from the cacao bar. And there's gins, cream liqueurs, all sorts of wonderful chocolatey goodies. Um, and what they've done is they've set a page up on the website that you can go to. And all you've got to do is just for you off the beaten track listeners, go over there, answer a question, and you could win the full range delivered to your front door. I mean, that's kind of them. All you have to do is go to this place, hotelchocolat.com forward slash OTBT podcast. That's OTBT as in off the beaten track podcast, hotelchocolat.com forward slash OTBT podcast. Go get your grubby little mitts on some deliciously chocolatey drinks, courtesy of our sponsors, Hotel Chocolat. I'll get back to the podcast. <laughs> It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we are recording. Joining me today, Jim Banner. Hello. Hey, Stu. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, we, we've just done the sort of fake hello there. We've had a little catch up because, I mean, this is the first time we've had a chat in... Did we meet up in between lockdowns? I think we did. I came over to a place in Shoreditch. It was uh, one of those wonderful moments of actually seeing someone in the flesh rather than virtually. That's right. I, I do like virtual calls. I think I'm, I'm used to it, as we all are probably by now. But it's, it's you crave for that, you know, human um, connection, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, I think it was the first thing we realized that... You know, in the, the previous 18 months, I think it was one of the first things we realized that as, as humans, we, we, you know, it's a necessity, that connection. Mm. And I think that, you know, I mean, we're doing this remotely today over Zoom. Um, and I think, I mean, I think we all wish we would have took shares out in Zoom about three years ago. But, <laughs> um, but I think that enabled us quite quickly to, 
have them you know whether it was quiz nights with a family or or whatever it was it was it it it, it forged that connection which i think we all we all realized how much we missed and yeah. i mean we're recording this in the you know, in 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 the middle of December, and and there's all sorts of stuff going on. So, who knows? I mean, this this episode's got a quick turnaround, and and we'll get to the reason that he's going to get a quick turnaround. And um and, and so just to kind of sort of set a, a a little kind of backstory. So I met. I mean, I'm sure this will will come into conversations. We we sort of talk about your creative journey this far, Jim. And and we met um at my venue, the Pink Toothbrush. You um we wanted to put on a a club. XFM, and at the time you was mm. you was heading up events at XFM, uh, and we met. What was that? Probably eleven years ago, maybe ten, eleven years ago. Maybe more. Oh, maybe so more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 yeah, like so many other people I know that know you, uh, you're you're a very uh, kind and likable person. And uh, thank you for and, saying, Stu. And and we've stayed in touch. And and mm. and although um, obviously XFM is no more, and you. You you went on to uh, fresh pastures, uh, which is War Child, and that is one of the the main reasons, aside from us being able to have a chat. and And I obviously want to chat about records with you because uh, I, I know you've got exquisite taste in music. So, um, before we get on to that, so just just tell us a little bit about um, what you do at War Child, and specifically why you're here to to talk about what War Child's doing at the moment. Um, I look after. Things associated with music. Um, so Warchild has a long and um, great heritage with music from the days when its founders came back from what was then Yugoslavia. They saw the, 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 the war going on in Bosnia. They were um, astounded and abhorred by what they saw. They came back to petition the government to see, you know, this is happening on our doorstep of Europe. You know, what can we do something about it? Um, the UK government didn't seem to be taking any notice at the time. So they reached out to people that they knew could help them. Um, and they were very well connected in the music industry. And amongst those people were Brian Eno and his wife, Anthea, um, who managed to uh, bring on board a whole bunch of their friends in the music world, people like David Bowie and Luciano Pavarotti and U2 and Paul McCartney and Kate Bush, David Bowie. And, um, they did a few sort of fundraising things to, to get the word out and um, raise the, the profile of this new charity, War Child. Um, but things really took off music-wise when War Child released uh, a compilation CD called Help in 1995. And that featured the great and good of UK music at the time. So um, big names of, of Britpop. So Oasis and Blur and Suede. Um, Radiohead uh, did a song called Lucky, which came out two years before it appeared on um, OK Computer. Um, there was uh, the leading lights of Trip Hop. We had Massive Attack and Portishead. Uh, we even had the KLF recording under another name and Andrew Weatherall recording under the name. So it really was an astounding collection, which still holds up today. And at the time, I think it sold over a million copies, which they were not planning on. And the whole thing kind of came together based on a, a paraphrasing a John Lennon quote, like write, write the song for breakfast, record it at lunch, release it at dinner. And they, they had this urgency, which today, you know, people probably think, well, I could record a, a record in my bedroom this afternoon. But back then in 1995, it was um, a logistical nightmare you know it was like building the pyramids or something how are we going to do this we got to get artists in a studio and have physical tape rolling and engineers and producers and imagine i forget how many tracks were on it 21 22 um you know uh, brian eno kind of based himself in abbey road studios and a lot of the people came in on the on the monday to to record it um i think uh, the Manic Street Preachers are stranded in France, and it was the first thing they did um, since the disappearance of, of Richie. Um, and it all kind of came together in a haphazard way, but it was released on the Friday, recorded on the Monday, re- released the, the, yeah, five days later on the Friday. And because everything came together so last minute, um, the track listing had to be printed in the, the music paper, so the enemy uh, melody maker um, 
and possibly uh, the Times or one of the big Sunday newspapers. So you didn't even know what the songs were until you, you, got, you know, got a, a music paper, you know, the following week. But um, yeah, it raised, I think, 1.2 million pounds for the charity, kind of put us on the map. And to a certain extent, we've been dining out ever since. And with the decline in the um, income of recorded music over time, Warchild has set um, our sights on live music because it's a steady stream or it was until COVID struck. Sure. Um, and we've been doing quite well with gigs. We um, put on around the Brit Awards in February. So we put a lineup of um, big bands and small venues for a good cause. That's pretty much the tagline. And mm-hmm. it's done quite well for us. And I guess um, most people know about the work we do through our music events. Um, and the work we do, I, I should probably say a little bit about that. I mean, our, our forte is psychosocial support. So we work with children in some of the darkest corners of the world in war zones who've had the, the worst things imaginable happen to them. Um, and we give them a safe place. We give them the education they're missing out on because maybe their school's bombed or they're living in a refugee camp. And we uh, counsel them to get over the, the, the traumas of war. And depending where we operate is, is the sort of level of support we give them. For instance, we're in Yemen right now, which is probably um, currently the world's greatest uh, humanitarian disaster. And people are just starving through the combination of war and famine and the whole sorts of terrible things that go with war. And, you know, it's you're not a child is not going to benefit from psychosocial support if they're starving. So, you know, our priority there is making sure children and, and the families that look after them are fed. Um, in other places like Uganda, where maybe the conflict's not as severe, but there's still a lot of Sudanese refugees uh, coming over the border. We're, we're helping people have livelihoods. So giving them small business grants and mentors to kind of make sure that they're on their feet and they're serving their communities. And, you know, when you have a solid, stable community, that the chances of um, that community slipping back into the cycles of war is less severe than it was. So um, I'm really proud and lucky to work for an organization like that. Um, a lot of my current focus is on our U.S. affiliate called Children in Conflict, which is really exciting for me. We've um, set up shop in uh, New York about four years ago, and we're trying to raise money for our U.K. programs um, in Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, Central African Republic, and Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and it's going great. It's uh, pretty exciting for me. Um, maybe your listeners are going, where the hell is that guy's accent from? Well, <laughs> I was born in um, Philadelphia and I've been living in the UK for 30 years. So my accent is probably somewhere over the, the North Atlantic, you know, uh, indescribable, maybe. I don't know. And, and, and Jim, I guess the, the current release is something that we should touch on before we, 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 we pile into the, the, the playlist. So you mentioned uh, our, we met when I was at XFM. You know, I think it's more like 15 plus oh, years ago. Shut up, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I see something today that the Libertines were doing. Uh, uh, 20 uh, years, uh, right? 20 how, years. how old does that make yeah, you feel? The Libertines 20 <laughs> years old. I know, I know. Yeah, I, I too is, am astounded. Um, but yeah, in uh, I guess in 2000, um, I was at XFM and um, – I guess the events was part of the marketing team and my boss was a woman called Charlotte Suzanne and um, she's a big music fan as everyone who, who worked at XFM, um, especially then were, were music fans. And I guess XFM was going through a weird time. Um, we had launched in 97 uh, on the day after Princess Diana died and, and <laughs> no one seemed to be interested. And then Capital Radio bought it and they were seen as the big evil corporates who came in and ruined this beautiful idea and in a sense, they kind of, it, it wasn't what it was, um, but it was kind of finding its feet again. And um, Charlotte was in charge of, of marketing this brand to make it seem a little more friendly because I think a lot of people thought um, XFM was an exclusive club. You had to be in it to get it. And um, they're trying to make it a little more user friendly. And uh, there was even a campaign called Don't Be Afraid. So it's like, trying to make it a little bit brighter. And I had this idea having um, read that the flaming lips are doing a Christmas album. This is the year 2000. And I read this in the NME. I think it was June. 
And I thought, oh, what a great idea. You know, um, I love Christmas music. In 2000, I don't think Christmas music seen as it is now, maybe it might be my perception as an older person that I get more nostalgic about happy things from my past. But then I think it was seen as a little bit naff and certainly not cool, at least not in the circles of people I was uh, choosing to associate with. Yeah, I agree um, with that. I definitely agree with that. So um, I wanted to, to do something that was going to last because Christmas music is, it comes around, you know, it's temporary, but it comes around every year. So there's a, a forever quality to this temporary thing. And it's, um, and I think if it's done well, it's something that you go back to or could go back to every year. So, I mean, I don't know if I'm a perfectionist or a, just a, a jerk who was set in his ways, but I kind of had an idea. I wanted to, you know, put together something that I enjoy and, you know, it wouldn't just enjoy that particular Christmas, but for Christmases to follow. So um, Charlotte and I approached a bunch of acts that we liked at the time. So again, this is 2000. Um, there wasn't much Christmas music out. There was a few that ended up on the album that I had on my like C90 cassette tapes. I'd listened to at Christmas, like, Elvez does this fantastic mashup of uh, Jose Feliciano's um, Feliz Navidad interspersed with uh, Public Image's Public Image, which is an amazing song. Um, uh, so I was a big fan of Elvez. Um, there was a track that was languishing on the B side of the Charlotte, um, not the Charlotte, and Saint Etienne's I Was Born on Christmas Day, which was sung by um, Tim Burgess from the Charlatans with Sarah Cracknell. I think I was the only person that liked that track. So I had a few that I kind of started with and asked, but um, I, I guess because I had some history at the Flaming Lips, I used to be a, a booker at the, the the garage in Highbury and the powerhouse and did some stages at the Reading and Phoenix festivals in the mid to late nineties. And so I, I kind of had connections with people and knew where to start and thought, well, if I get a phone call to them, because this is when people were still on the phone, Stuart, remember those yeah. days, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'd call up these people and, um, you know, uh, thought, well, what's the worst they can say? No. You know, and this is, Ju- you know, by the time we got going, it's July. And who's thinking about Christmas in July? You know, and Charlotte and I were listening to the Phil Spector Christmas record and the low Christmas EP, which came out in 1999. Those were our, our inspirations. You know, everyone else is grooving to the sounds of summer. And there we are listening to White Christmas in July, you know. <laughs> But it got us in the mood and, and we reached out to a bunch of people and, you know, we were lucky enough that I think 21 artists came back with a yes. Um, and it's, it, it's a, it's a great little record. I think um, still sounds good. I mean, a lot of them were demos. We didn't have much money to play with. Um, so either um, begged or borrowed them to, or we gave them a small budget to go record. I remember we gave the flaming lips, um, $400 to go in their studio in Oklahoma city. And I love the flaming lips Stuart, probably more than anyone that's ever walked this earth, yeah. you know, and I loved them since 1984 and I got this first green vinyl EP from them. So you're in good company, Jim. I, I, I love them. And, um, they would do a version of white Christmas live, you know, Wayne would be on his megaphone. So I said, Oh, we'll do that. And they were playing in this Christmas record, which is the inspiration for our Christmas record. But I don't think theirs came out till, 2008 you know so they were they weren't moving as quickly as we were um so they did this version of white christmas and wayne's singing even weirder than he usually does and i I, that the whole idea in their head was that they wanted to create a christmas record that they would then get guest vocalists on and this instance they were thinking of tom waits so wayne coin is singing in a style i in his head sound like Tom Waits. I'm like, Oh my God, this is, I love the flame lips, but Wayne, why can't you just sing like Wayne? Yeah. And, um, in the politest way, he told me to do one, you know, I'll, you know, like it or lump it. And I'm like, okay, I'm taking it, you know, and it is a, it is a brilliant track. The instrumentation, instrumentation is, is incredible. Um, but yeah, and we managed to, to get a whole bunch of people on there. Um, Lauren Laverne, long before she was the uh, much loved and respected uh, national treasure of a, a broadcaster. I think she, you know, Kanicki had pretty much hung up their guitars and maybe she sang on a Mint 400 track or something. But she was kind of. Yeah, you don't, know, don't fault her. That was a great single. Yeah. 
she's considering options. And I, I think her doing the track on the XFM thing kind of led to her getting a show on XFM or certainly got her in front of the, the relevant people's attention there. Um, so I, I'm not taking credit for Lauren Laverne's uh, career. You know, that's all down to her. But, uh, you know, it was nice that, that she she did a track, um, which is a very strange version of In the Bleak Midwinter and kind of like as if the Aphex twin was doing the instruments, which was actually done by her brother, Pete. Um, he was also in Kinnicky. Um do you want me to talk about a few other stories? Well, no, we'll we get on to that. But so yeah. the, the, the album's out now as well, right? It's out now. Yeah, it's been out a couple of weeks. It's actually, I think this week it was number two in the vinyl compilation charts. Amazing. You know? um, there's a few different color, uh, colors. It's in red, clear, and blue, as well as black vinyl. So depending where you buy it, um, you could get a, a limited edition color. Uh, and it's a really nice package. I mean, the whole thing it originally came out on CD in the year 2000, but now it's up on digital streaming platforms for the first time and vinyl. And that's pretty much how Warchild's going to make the money from it, from the vinyl sales. Okay. Uh, what, what I'll do is I'll put the um, link in the bio for this podcast. So if people uh, want to go buy it, then, uh, and I can also put the, the link for, do you want me to put the link for the, the, the streaming in there as well? Uh, if you like, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Just as long as people are listening to it, you know, of course I'd, I'd love them to buy the vinyl as well, but you know, if they're, they're listening, we'll get 0.0008 P a track or whatever it is. Go buy it on <laughs> vinyl. Come on. Yeah. I mean, also what's it called? We should say that. It's called, it's a cool, cool Christmas. Lovely. Love. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, right. Well, 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 we'll pick back up on, on, on some of the things that you've mentioned about your, your journey this far, but I want to kick off the playlist, Jim. Um, and I always do that by asking the guests to tell me, please, the song with the greatest ever intro, please. Well, this is the hardest question for me. Still. Everyone I, says I, that. Everyone says I, this is the I, I'm still not deciding. <laughs> uh, <let's... laughs> I've told you you'll add some honourable mentions, mate. You're okay. So the first one that came to mind was um, Stone Love by The Supremes. Oh. So Diana Ross had left maybe 1970, and it was Gene Terrell, who sounds very much like Diana Ross. And the track Stone Love has this epic um, opening. It's not the single version. The single version just starts with um, Gene Terrell singing Stone Love, you know, but the, the album like version that. or whatever. Yeah, well, a little bit better than that. <laughs> but it's got this, you know, the horn section that, that kind of goes into this uh, grand piano and harp glissando. Is that the word? And Gene Terrell's beautiful voice. It's, it's a pretty incredible opening. I, and I like openings that are like a clarion call. It's like makes you sit up and listen. You're a DJ, you know, doing club nights, and I'm sure you do weddings. And just I love those records which 
just makes everyone stop what they're doing and listen. Like, yeah. you know, shut up, everybody. Listen to this thing and that announces itself. Another track that kind of has that quality is um, Dusty Springfield's um, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. Oh. I mean, it just, you know, it's just. That starts with a brass, doesn't it? Ba, ba, yeah. Ba, ba. It's so grand, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And it's timpani and it's just, you know. It's just like you you can't answer. You just have to stop and, you know, bathe in this, yeah. you know, wonderful sound. It's impossible to listen to that and not not get the drama. And and I instantly, my hands go dusty. I get theatrical. If I'm listening, <laughs> it's impossible not to kind of get your arms and your hands dusty style involved. It's uh, – and I don't know if you've seen the, the, the doc on uh, – I mean, there's, there's many documentaries on Dusty, but yeah. the, the the kind of gestures that I'm making, which, you know, I guess you can't see, is, is obviously anyone that's ever seen Dusty perform, she's very, very dramatic with her, yeah. her arms in her performance. But apparently the, 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 the rumour is, and she used to do this thing where she mm-hmm. would have the lyrics that she'd forgot written on her hands, and so she would kind of, like, throw her hands up because she could – actually read the lyrics that uh what a true pro you know <laughs> love but, like that. i never knew that and even if she wasn't it was working you know absolutely you know, pre-teleprompter days like i don't know if you saw the beatles get back you know i'm like, halfway john, through it at the moment oh my god it's so john lennon he, he can't remember the words to was it two of us or something anyway he gets kevin the, the roadie to kind of kneel in front of him holding the the sheets of paper you know like a primitive teleprompter but you know, if you don't say it, it's like you know, um, saying the wizard behind the curtain. You don't, you, you don't have to know that bit. You know, we, I love the magic. I also like the other intros, Stu. I'm a big fan of a meaty guitar riff opening a track. So, um, like T Rex's 20th Century Boy, that just like cuts through everything when you hear that guitar riff. So as, good as an indie DJ. When Placebo covered it, and there's, there's, there's not a lot between them. Their version is almost identical, isn't it? But yeah. it's produced bigger. So when right. you drop that in a club, it sounds bigger. And, like, and wow. I often have that kind of little argument with myself. Do I play T-Rex? Do I say, do I play Placebo? But I think Placebo's just got that bigger sounding production that when you play it in a club, it sounds that bit beefier. Yeah. And I think for, unless you're at an absolute kind of bowling obsessive, they're very, very similar. Uh, they are uh, uh, like the, everything about it. It's almost like, uh, I, I guess, cause they were trying to be true to it for, it wasn't a part of the velvet gold mine. That's right, or yeah. Something. yeah. Um, and I don't think I mentioned this to you, but ELO's do yet. When I was a, I don't know how old I was 12 or 13 years old. That just sounded amazing. That opening, yeah. you know, so good. And then I wanted to mention, um, in a different way, uh, Sunday Morning by the Velvet Underground has the Celeste, the like bell piano. And that kind of ties in with the opening of the It's a Cool, Cool Christmas album, which has um, Granddaddy doing a song called Alan Parsons in a Winter Wonderland, which is their version of a Winter Wonderland with goofy lyrics. But it's got that soft yeah. intro, which kind of is harkens to that um, Velvet Underground sound, which I really like. Yeah, Granddaddy were really good at like the dreamy stuff. Certainly, probably around then was it? Was that software slump time around then? Possibly, yes. I think, yeah, yeah. Crystal Lake. And, oh, it's, it's the track. Is yeah. it? He's simple. He's dumb. He's the pilot. That's the, oh, that's the tune. That seven minute <laughs> epic. <laughs> it's a beauty that one. Oh God, yeah. I lose myself on that. The volume goes right up when that comes on. <laughs> Yeah. So, what what what's your choice? You going with Stone Love? Well, no, no. I here's here's the one I think I'm going to okay. go for, Stu, and I'll tell you why. Um, as as you probably gathered, I'm a bit of a Beatles obsessive, and the track "I Want to Hold Your Hand" was written with the express intent intent of breaking America, and it's not as glamorous or outstanding an intro because it's not even on a proper Beatles album over here in America. It's the opening track of Meet the Beatles, which somehow, you know, the American stuff no longer counts as part of the Beatles official discography because it was messed with Capitals, Dave Dexter Jr., who hated the Beatles and put extra reverb on anything. But that side one of Meet the Beatles is as good track listing of any vinyl record side ever. And that's just such a great opening track. And 
America fell in love with him, I think, you know, because of that song and that intro. So to make the world or a country fall in love with you, that's pretty good going, you know. It's it's really weird, like, that I thought, like, I've done 350 episodes of this now, and you're only, the, as far as I'm aware, the second person to pick a Beatles track. And like, well, that's because I think we take them for granted. I, I certainly put them in a, they're like a class apart. You know, when I was a kid, I had my Beatles cassettes, you know, compilations, and then I have everyone else. You know, they, they were kind of separate for me. And even in a club, I rarely, if ever, played a, a, a Beatles track, you know, because I used to DJ a lot in the mid 90s. I was working at Vince Powers Mean Fiddler organization, and I was cheap and ready and half decent so if he needed a dj at short notice off oh, jim will do it you know and i'd yeah. be glad to do it you know but i rarely broke out the beatles yeah. you know rolling stones i know what you're saying i know what you're you saying. know um but the kinks the who you know i i play all of them but the beatles i don't know i kind of kept away yeah. from them on, on, for indie clubs so. i think josh weller chose help uh, as an intro and that's a cracker like, yeah, well, every Beatles song has a great opening. In yeah. fact, all all everyone's favorite songs have great openings because yeah. they fit. They wouldn't. I mean, it's the first part. I guess it's like read, you know, a book. It has to have that great opening line yeah. or first paragraph. You know, definitely, definitely. I'm going to take you back now, Jim. For track two, I'd like you to tell me the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please, mate. Well. This is another one I struggle with. I don't know if I think, take things too literally, but I'm thinking, still probably looking for something where I got a little bit weepy or teary-eyed, but I had such an idyllic childhood. It can be happiness. You it know, can be joy. It can it be was, emotion. It was euphoria, and um, we had a little setup in uh, the rec room, which was in the basement of the house we grew up in, and I, and I, I have two sisters. One's two years younger than me, uh, Jim and Kim, so my sister Kim, and we would listen to... Um, I guess my dad had a stack of 45s, which he didn't mind us young kids messing with. This, and he was, had to, in, this he, was in Philly, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this is in Norristown, which is outside Philly, uh, which we'll get to when we talk about, you know, the county I grew up in. Okay. So, um, yeah, we used to have a stack of 45s. My dad had this stereo, which he built himself. Like, you would buy these kits, I guess, in the early 60s that you put together. And he had, like, this big mono speaker that had vacuum tubes. So we'd turn on the amp and you'd have to wait for the vacuum tubes to warm up before you'd get sound out of it. Um, and it was a great sound, you know, it was mono and all these records were made in mono. And I still remember hearing like, you mentioned help uh, that Josh Waller picked up. I remember hearing that, uh, or maybe it was Ticket to Ride in the record shop I worked in, like the original vinyl pressing, it just jumps out of the speakers, yeah. you know, more so than anything you listen on digital streaming platforms. Or CDs even. But, um, yeah, we, we had a stack of 45s, a lot of um, Chuck Berry and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Fats Domino and Little Richard. So I kind of felt like I had the building blocks of rock and roll instilled in me at a very early age. Yeah. There's this one track, I think it was the flip side of a, The Lonely Bull by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. It's called Alcapoca 1922. And it's just this instrumental but it's the happiest friggin' record you'll ever hear. <laughs> like finger snapping and whistling and a happy trumpet. And it just, you know, I, I, I hear that song and I immediately I'm transported back to my basement when I was six years old, you know, playing records with my sister, not having a care in the world, no responsibility, feeling safe and looked after, you know, sort of like what, you know, the war child works with, what we aim for kids yeah. to be, you know, to have a happy childhood. And I was, a, I was a happy kid. I feel very lucky, you know? Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's the one I think. Wonderful. Um, Wonderful. Well, Jim, I'm going to stay in the, the, the early years and uh, I'm going to ask you for track three to tell me the song that reminds you of your time at school, please. Well, here's the thing I, I wasn't sure of, Stu. When you say school here, I know I've been living in this country 33 years. I should know by now. But are you talking like when you're, I don't know, what you would call secondary or primary school? Or are you thinking more like sixth form? Or- I, I, I guess I guess secondary school is the, the kind of years where you start to kind of, I don't know, 
work your taste out a little bit more maybe um right. but, i mean I, I imagine you've got 15 answers anyway so that probably go from, <laughs> from so the I'll 80s of like six to 18 anyway it, right? but yeah you can uh, obviously sort of pick a a, a few well, it doesn't necessarily do with um me for my taste but i remember kiss kind of being the band of of that period you know like all my peers, that's what they were listening to. Like, I guess Queen and Cheap Trick. I mean, I was a Beatle obsessive then. There was no one I could touch them. But like Cheap Trick, Queen, but Kiss, uh, Rock and Roll All Night. That just, that was the song of the time, you know. I prefer the studio version, you know. I, I tend to prefer studio versions over live versions. There are a few exceptions, but I think the live version was on Kiss Alive, and that was like probably the biggest record going. And yeah. 1977 or whatever when i was 12 years old and um it's weird that 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 kind of relationship just to touch on that track a little bit jim like and and you know so many american artists like kiss are such a big thing and in the uk at that point it just didn't resonate the same way from from what i i mean i'm maybe a little bit too young to have just kind of caught it at that point but they didn't seem to have the same impact in the UK as they did stateside. Do you think that's fair for me well, to say? Oh, absolutely. Um, and as someone who's lived, you know, on both sides and holds two passports, I, I, I and, and I sometimes say I'm bilingual. I speak American and English. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, it's Kiss are a dumb rock band. It's just stupid in, the, in a beautiful way. And I don't mean that as an insult. The yeah. Ramones are stupid and I love them. Mm. You know, you don't have to think they're, you know, they're, their thoughts aren't in their heads. They're, it's in their trousers. Right. And it's all, you know, it, like I want to rock and roll all night party every day. You know, they're not appealing to poets and, yeah. you know, the, the highbrow thinkers. They're, you know, just idiots who want to, you know, lose their shit and, you yeah. know, rock out it's um and that really that's that's a thing that americans get you know you're you're driving on a big fat highway with the windows rolled down and the music turned up and you know the wind blowing in your hair when i had hair you know that kind of <laughs> that's where that music makes sense you don't get that in a ford cortina driving on you know some b road in essex you know so it's never going to translate, you know, on a gloomy, grey day, you know. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Um, just to sort of, I, I mean, is, is Kiss your choice? Yeah, I mean, I, when I think, when Americans think of school, we think of high school. You yeah. know, that's, all the movies are focused on that. And that's like meant to be the best time of your life. Or so I thought, you know, a kid without a care in the world, you know. And I was into New Wave and, you know, I loved hardcore punk from los angeles like back black flag and circle jerks and the dead kennedys there from san francisco but you know that's the stuff i was kind of into but i also liked anything different like everyone else like genesis and bruce springsteen but i was you know i love the, the english new wave and punk stuff you know that's what drew you to that um i don't know i always had this thing just i wanted new great sounds and the obvious things were ubiquitous. I didn't need to delve into that because it was already there. So I was always, it's like, I guess like being a miner for gold, you know, in San Francisco in 1949, you're sifting through all that sand and mud to find those nuggets. So I was just musically curious, you know, always wanting that next fix. Cause it was, it's euphoric here in great sounds, you know, especially at that age when and I guess music seemed compared to today, certainly more tribal, you know, you kind of nailed your colors to the mast. You know, who are you with? Uh, you know, are you a psychobilly or a punk rocker or, or a new romantic or whatever? You know, it, that was serious stuff yeah. when I was younger. I mean, in America, we didn't have the um, the minutiae that you guys hear, you know, your tribal stuff. Um, you know, you were either a jock who liked, you know, what, whatever was blasting out on FM radio or you were like the punk rocker you know for lack of better words and you know so all the 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 freaks sort of gathered together so whether you liked you know duran duran and elvis costello were considered new wave you know in in america where i was you know here in the uk you know they're like mainstream artists yeah or maybe on the cool side of mainstream or elvis costello certainly uh you know nothing bad against duran duran either you know i i love their first few records um but 
you know, it's, I, I don't know. It's just, um, yeah, I was always different. I always, and that's probably why I'm here living in, in, in Britain now is because I was such an Anglophile, whether that started with the Beatles, but so much of the music I love even today, you know, has come from this, this gray Island, you know, cause people care too, you know, did you enjoy school? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I had the socially awkward things going on dates and proms, but I had a very, you know, relatively um, uh, emotionally scar free uh, time at school. You know, had you any idea what you wanted to be? No, and I still don't, Stu. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm closer to retirement than I am to anything else. I'm you know? sure we've had this conversation before, yeah. Jim. <laughs> I have no idea either, mate. I just know I want to be around the music, and I kind of always have. I mean, the second day, you know, the day after I landed in, in, in London, you know, to, to kind of make a new life, I just, you know, I met this English girl in San Francisco, and we hit it off, and she – spent some time in Philly with me and then she's moved back to London and I was working at this radio job in Philadelphia. And I'm like, it's changing its format, which it's stations do in America, you know, like overnight almost, you know? And I was like, well, do I really want to work at a smooth adult contemporary radio station or do I just go hang out with my new English girlfriend? She's going to London and see how that works out. And I did, you know, and I'm still here that that relationship unfortunately didn't work out, but you know, I, I met someone who's now my wife and I got two kids and a house and, you know, that's a big step, isn't mm. it? To like, you know, how old was you? Yeah. 23. Right. And you knew no one yeah. apart from this girl in the UK. Well, I, I, I had done um, a few months in Manchester um, on an exchange program. Then I went back to the States for a year. Um, yeah. And then came back. So I had a few friends in London um, and the one who picked me up at the, uh, airport she introduced me to this guy who had a stall a shop in camden market and he's like right you, you want to start tomorrow i'm like okay you know it's like, i don't know how that happens you know I, I think i was the only time i've been truly you know lucky with 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 something like that um oh that was a record store yeah oh, yeah so wow. it's called vinyl experience uh don't know if you ever bought records in Camden in yeah, the, of course. the 80s, 90s. I used to have a motorcycle going through the window yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on Buck Street, you know. Wow. I mean, yeah. that's, that's landing on your feet, isn't it? I guess so. I mean, I was paid a pittance, but I didn't care. Yeah. I was just I – was, I was working in a record shop. And that, that was a great education too because I just play records all day long yeah. for yourself and for other people. And, yeah, and, and I just totally immersed myself in it. How so. much did you immerse yourself did did you become that that record shop guy? Did you teeter into high fidelity scenario? Did you did you get that kind of elitist kind of uh, approach? Be honest with me, Jim. Um, Be honest with me. No, I'll tell you, it's a good story. So Nick Hornby <laughs> used to come in the shop. By the oh, way, really? Um, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, that was one of the inspirations. Probably um, what's it called? Rock on, which is around the corner. And, um, on Kennish town road near the boot store that, that was probably where he's probably spent more time there than ours. But I think it was our shop rock on and there's one in Holloway as well, which was the inspiration for the shop in high fidelity. Anyway, I, my friend, Nick, who I worked with, who gave me the job, um, we were sort of like uh, Dylan Moran and Bill Bailey in Black Books. And he was the miserable Dylan Moran guy in charge who hated people, you know, the misanthrope. And I was the Bill Bailey, happy-go-lucky, you know, nice guy, yeah. you know, the friendly face. Um, and I think the guys who wrote Graham Linnan, I'm, I'm sure he's been in the record shop, <laughs> you know, and I always think, you know what, I wonder if he knew, but I, I'm sure there's a situation in across the independent retail sector where there's that kind of relationship. Always, always. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's talk um, independent record stores and, uh, and I'll, well, it, it might not be an independent record store, but I want you to tell me the first song you remember buying from a record store. Well, this is, uh, I wasn't sure. I remember, or, you know, some records I had early on. One was the Monster Mash by um, Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kicker Five. 
which is a novelty tune. I think it was re-released a few times, recorded maybe 1962 at the LA Wrecking Crew, you know, like he's played on all those great records from Sinatra to the Beach Boys to the Monkees to Glenn Campbell to whatever. Um, and Darlene Love sang backing vocals. I love Darlene Love, you know. Um, so it's like the same people on the, the, the Phil Spector records. Um, but I remember loving that. And that could have been my first purchase. I also remember um, I wanted to get Paul Simon's Kodachrome. So I must have been seven or eight. This would have been, I don't know, 1973. I remember going to this department store and they didn't have that but they had um love me like a rock which is i guess his follow-up single to go to chrome from the same album i remember getting that i liked it okay but i, I even to this day i like Kodachrome chrome more yeah. and i don't think i've ever purchased it you know but um yeah i i love loves me like a rock i still got um did, did record buying become an obsession yeah my dad and i used, used to go to um garage sales where people just sell entire collections. My dad would buy, you know, like five bucks and he'd walk home and like, you know, 150 records. And most of them were awful, but there was always a few gems. Like for some reason, the ventures must've sold a ton of records to suburban Philadelphians. You know, I remember a bunch of that um, kind of supplemented my Beatles collection with a, a few from there. And then we used to go to this guy called Val Shively in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, which was not a story you can browse. And it was just this madman who had this treasure trove of seven inch records, but you couldn't browse. You know, you just had to go and say, Val, I want, please, please me by the Beatles on VJ. And he'll go, okay, I'll get it. But, you know, you had to know what you want. You just yeah. couldn't go in like, hmm, you know, I think he may be there to this day, you know. Love that. Love that. Mm. Well, Jim, I'm going to move things forward to, um, mm. I'm interested to know if it's going to be you as a clubber or you as a DJ, but for track five, um, the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. I was never a clubber. Of course, you know, I, I, I went to raves on the, you know, the M20 off the M25 getting lost where you had to go to a petrol station to figure out where it was going to be. But I, I never really got off on, on rave music. Yeah. Um, but I DJed a lot in, in the, um, the nineties. Like I said earlier, I was, you know, the go-to guy for the Vince power mean fiddler group. Yeah. And he had like a lot of venues. So I DJed at the cross bar and King's cross and powerhouse. I had a regular Saturday night there. Um, when it was in Finsbury park, I DJed odd nights, at the garage. I must've been on the dance floor. So many of your nights that you've been DJing over the years, Jim. Well, you know, and, and as you as an indie DJ, um, Stu, I'm sure there are some certain things. And, you know, you figure in the era of Britpop, there was, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. A little bit of easy listening, a little bit of 60s stuff. Like, I forget, my club was called Top Shelf. And the thing was a like a potpourri of post-Presley pop from something to something. I can't remember what it was, <laughs> you know. But actually, jazz yeah. was floating about then. There was so much yeah. stuff all kind of happening in and around that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. But um, well, i, I got to tell you this story, Stu. Go for so it. I was DJing at the Crossbar in King's Cross. I think it's now the Big Chill venue or something. Um, and I think it was a birthday party. I think it was Steve Lamack. James Brown, the the guy who was an enemy journalist and sort of founded Loaded and went on to um, do GQ, and Neil Pengelly, who was my coworker, and he was the the main guy who booked the Reading Festival. I don't know if it was a joint birthday or a celebration or whatever, but they those three were sort of the principals in organizing this party, and I was one of the DJs. I was like the prime time guy, and this night, you know, you're thinking of I don't know what the capacity was two hundred maybe um and it's mostly a bar with a little bit of a dance floor you had the dj booth was was up in this like crow's nest structure you had to climb this precarious ladder to get up the top and when you're carrying like two heavy boxes like with vinyl in it and cds i used to carry cds in a giant that was insane anyway getting it up there was always like death defying not necessarily for me getting it up there for people below helping me if i let go or something but um it was it was the height of Britpop, probably 1995 it may have been like james brown's 30th birthday or sorry stephen max 30th birthday and it was like 
everyone who was on the cover of the NMA for the past few years was in that room. You know, you had uh, Liam and Noel, Boo Radley's, Shed Seven, Elastica, Pulp, Blur. They were all there. And I was kind of like, what am I, what's going to get them on the dance floor? I want to see Liam dance. Um, so I'm kind of eyeing up and I'm playing my potpourri or post-pressing pot or whatever, you know, going down okay. And because I'm up there in this crow's nest, I get this view of the entire venue. So, like, you got the dance floor on one side of the booth, but you kind of see this bar, which is a kind of a curved shape that went to the other side of the room. You're literally and, the fly on the wall, aren't you? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah the, the fly up. and in the, So <laughs> I'm, I'm looking down, and I see Liam Gallagher at the bar having an argument with someone. And it was getting kind of feisty. And I, maybe it was a music journalist or like a, a tabloid person. You know, it, it, I can't remember. And I just saw, Ooh, that, that's going to, that's getting kind of feisty. And um, I remember the bouncer, Paul, who's guy built like Frankenstein, who I, I'd known from the powerhouse and he was now working there. Good guy, really good guy. Um, and he kind of went over and, you know, calmed things down a little bit. Liam went away, you know, and then I, I'm, playing a few records. I noticed again, Liam goes over that he must've been thinking and it just wound him up again. So he's back at the bar and it kicks off. I, you know, I can't remember exactly, but there's some shoving and pushing, you know, and I remember Paul, the bouncer kind of picking Liam up from like the, the back of his belt straps and the scruff of his neck and lifting him like a barbell over his head. So Paul's with <laughs> Liam up in the air like kicking him out of the venue. And as Liam's walking out of the venue on, you know, you know, lifted in the air, I'm like, Oh God, put an Oasis track on. So I put on cigarettes and alcohol and I swear to God, dude, it's like the best moment my DJ career. The place erupted. You could feel it, you know, like the whole the place went mad. People got up on tables and punched in the air. And I'm thinking, Oh, poor Liam's out there on the pavement. And that's me. They're playing. And now I'm kicked out here while they're playing cigarettes and alcohol. Oh, it was such a great one. Because everyone could kind of see Liam Gallagher being, you know, like the hero of the day. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so are you going for cigarettes and alcohol? I will, yeah. Oh, amazing, yeah. amazing. I mean, what were some of your other sort of go-tos, uh, uh, you know, uh, around that period? Like, what were... What were the tunes? Did you have any that like weren't necessarily the big hitters, but you'd kind of worked into the into the set that that you, you know them songs that sometimes you feel like you've championed, right? And like, well, I, like, do you remember Ananda Shankar? It was um, he did a cover version of, like "Light My Fire," and he's, uh, I think he's like Ravi Shankar's nephew or something. But he he had some wild versions of, of Western songs with uh, Indian arrangements that probably came out in the mid to late 60s yeah. and light my fire dancing drums it's maybe streets of calcutta but it's some wild stuff like maybe seven minute 12 inches that just like nothing else you heard i used to play that a lot of the prodigy which was probably going around um because around that time you had that matar didn't you indian vibes as well that yeah was like but a, yeah and anna shanger was very much yeah. that that way um what else was i playing that that was kind of like I, I used to end the night either on Daydream Believer or to the end, or maybe I did blurs to the end and then Daydream Believer. I, I wanted to give people something they walk out singing to, always, you know, always on the bus. Um, what else did I play? I, I used to love, um, you know, is it Rob D club to death? It was yeah. like, in the Guinness, it was like, I love the piano version. I forget what's called the cure coriano mix or something but yeah. kind of had this nice little piano bit and when my first show on xfm that's what i opened up with i had the alan partridge shift like five to seven in the morning <laughs> and it just hit the spot and i used to mix it it was like a beginning of the evening thing like oh this is good you're not ready to dance yet but you're kind of maybe on your second pint and you're kind of feeling good and i'd always segue into nina simone's um that's bird's high, flying high. What is it? Uh, feeling feeling good. good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was a nice – that was like my little mix there. Um, so did you did you find yourself at XFM at the start when it was at Charlotte? Yeah, yeah. Street? I was there like what we had um, RSLs, we call it, restricted service license. So from 1992 to I think 95, we would be on air for four weeks at a time uh, broadcasting to Camden and Islington, but it was really – as far as the wind would blow it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was part of that original gang. And then when we launched 
September 1st, 1997, the day after Princess Diana died. And yeah. No one cared. Yeah, I, I was the, doing the Alan Partridge shift uh, uh, early you breakfast. Know what? I'm so happy that I, I got to Charlotte Street once. Once mm. I come in the building. It was only small, wasn't it? And like, oh, it was a townhouse. It was yeah. a narrow townhouse. Yeah. And, and I remember there was like, I didn't go in the studio, but there was like another room that had like a couple of stereos in it, and it looked like a kind of sort of like a waiting room or something. And I like, just do you know what I mean? I there was, um, it was like a green room type thing, or like it might have been like I don't know, but it was just this sort of room where, and and I went in there, uh, and Gary Crowley was was uh, was there. And and mm. he he was sort of sitting over one side of it, and we went in there. Um, I, I must have told you story, but I went in there with my my my, my demo for my new band, and mm-hmm. at the time Gervais had been managing my old band. Sure, so I wanted yeah. to go and play uh, Ricky the new stuff, and and at the time no one really knew who Ricky was. He wasn't like the Ricky. Well, he Gervais was that stuff. annoying guy that came on Gary Crowley and Claire yeah. Sturgis and sometime Ian Canfield show in the afternoon, and you loved him or hated him. He was like a hundred percent. Yeah, he broke things up. And I mean, he was our head of speech. And I don't know what head of speech was in a radio music station. I think he was there, the guy to um, uh, organize the, the, the travel, the traffic and travel reports and the weather and the news feed. So basically, he would liaise with a third party contractor. They would say, OK, we're going to do top of the hour from here to here. And then again, later in the day. And he even got himself an assistant, which was Stephen Merchant. And, you know, that it, here's something, Stu. The office, that, that, so that Steve and Ricky met at XFM. Stephen was Ricky's assistant. Yeah. Ricky says, well, I, I need an assistant. And somehow he convinced the powers that be that, yes, okay, you will have an assistant. And Stephen Merchant was his assistant. And towards the end, when um, we knew we, uh, the station was going to be sold to Capital Radio, um, Stephen and, and Ricky started writing the what was to become The Office. I think it was called Sleazy Boss then. And I'll tell you what, watching The Office was very uneasy for me because I witnessed those things, some of those things firsthand. Right. You know, so, you know, uh, the characters in The Office are an amalgamation of, of people that I guess Ricky and Steve knew yeah. throughout their lives. But there was a lot of situations that actually happened at XFM that they have incorporated into the office. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It was so weird. I'm, at that time I was in there, I just, I wasn't bothered what Ricky thought. I was just thinking, and I remember just sitting there playing, uh, playing it to Ricky, but I could see that Gary Crowley was tapping his foot, and I was thinking, I've made it. Gary Crowley <laughs> tapping his foot to well, my you demo. Would have been on the, I think it was the fifth floor. It was like in the eaves of the building. That was like yeah. the DJ ghetto. That's where we'd go to prepare our shows or wind yeah. down afterwards. Yeah, that, that would have been it. And that kind of Ricky had his 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 desk on one side of the room, you know, yeah. and everyone else kind of hot desked it. But um, brilliant, yeah, brilliant. Well, let's take you home, Jim, uh, and for track six, uh, a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Why well, singing as an American? Do I get special? I don't know, like a, a, a allowance because you know you're thinking of Kent Essex. Uh, whatever lancashire and i'm thinking but then montgomery county which is where i grew up so i grew up in a town called norristown about 15 20 miles outside of philadelphia um and it's the county seat of montgomery county which it's a probably a third most populated county in the state of pennsylvania you know after philadelphia which is a county the biggest city in pennsylvania and allegheny county which contains pittsburgh on the other side of the state and it's not a musical hub, really. Like, I was, I was trying to think, like, who's come from Montgomery County? Like, um, Jimmy Smith, the organist, the incredible Jimmy Smith, who, I, in fact, I used to play a version of Mac the Knife that he did, you know, sort of an easy listening, yeah. groovy organ vibe that he did uh, at the club nights. But um, And Jacko Pastorius, the brilliant bass player from The Weather Report. But jazz was never my thing, so I can't go with them. But um, Hall & Oates are from Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. So Darrell Hall's from Pottstown, which is about 20 miles up the road from where I grew up. And uh, John Oates is from North Wales, which is a little bit closer. But they met at Temple University in in Philadelphia. Uh, And I wasn't a huge Hall & Oates fan. They were, again, uh, a ubiquitous 
sound like man eater oh i got a great hole and oats story but anyway i kind of went for sarah smile by hole and oats give me the hole and oats story i want to hear it i so, was so um, close to having daryl hall on here about four months ago and it <laughs> fell through and i was so excited oh well i was meeting someone at the latitude festival i don't know how many years ago it's probably like four or five years ago now and uh, we were meeting and i guess the the 10 and it was uh we were gonna we we're gonna watch um Connor Oberst or Bright Eyes or whatever he was, mm. you know, playing under, you know, and then we kind of hang out a little bit. Um, so we, we, we see Connor Oberst, he, he does a great set and we're, we're having a chit chat. I haven't seen this friend in a while and Hall and Oates are on next. And um, it's like, Oh, Hall and Oates, this is, this is a strange choice. And they open with Maneater. And I don't know if you know the opening to Maneater. So it's space. And it just went on seemingly forever, but not in a bad way forever. It's like, oh. and they, they just, they were so good. Yeah. They, they were so good, um, Stu, that uh, they ended with this guy who looked like Gandalf the Grey. You know, he had this beard down to his crotch and, you know, and he's playing this sax solo that was like 15 minutes long. And, you know, in normal circumstances, I would say I'd rather be anywhere else. Yeah. But near this guy. But he was incredible. I did not want it to end. It w- they did such a good set. And John Oates, he's kind of thinking like he's kind of superfluous goods, right? He's like the Andrew Ridgely. Or they, mm-hmm. like, what does he bring into the, the thing? Well, I can't Daryl Hall, who's like the good looking songwriter, main singer. You know, like, what's he need John Oates? But you could see John Oates had a place. There, he was... He kind of like, ah, oh, that's what he does. He kind of, I don't know if he's a music director, but he kind of pulls it together in a, a great way. And I, they were just mind-blowingly good. There's a, I don't know if you ever watched any of the, the Daryl's, is it Daryl's house thing on, uh, on, on YouTube where he's, he's got some incredible barn in his garden. Uh, right. And he has, have you seen any of these? No, I have oh, not. they're amazing, Jim. And he, and he gets different guests in uh, and they play basically Hall and Oates songs. But, um, he brings in Chromio, uh, and they do. I can't go for that, and they do Family Man, uh, and hearing them because Chromio have got their vocoders, and mm. so hearing them doing like "Leave Me Alone," I'm a family man, like <laughs> through a through a, like a vocoder. It's like hearing like I don't know Roger Trapman with like uh, with, with like Daryl Hall. It's mental, and it sounds absolutely incredible yeah you just um yeah it's on youtube uh chromeo daryl hall it's uh it's worth a watch that it's uh it's wow. a cracker it i really will is. check that out uh, yeah i i i don't know because growing up in philadelphia we always had philly fridays on the radio and i worked at a, a couple radio stations and i was sick of all that gambling huff and i'll tell you what now that I live in, in, in London, I can't get enough of that. The Delphonics, <laughs> I love anything by Gamble and Huff. Now I go there and I like make a pilgrimage to, you know, uh, what's it called? Sound City, you know, where Bowie recorded yeah. Young Americans. It's, I just, I, I love that stuff. But back then it was just, it was in the air. You yeah. know, I guess absence or distance makes the heart grow fonder. And I've, you know, of course. come to appreciate, you know, the Philly sound. Yeah. So, Jim, uh dj um tastemaker this is your uh, this is your chance to to continue that that um that opportunity to influence and so for the last track jim i'm going to ask you please to tell me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear please well i'm gonna kind of plug this record uh it's a cool cool christmas that's yeah. an aid of war child uh with 21 great christmas tracks and i'm thinking the one that you could play and your grand and your three-year-old niece would enjoy, you know, and everyone in between is um, Bell and Sebastian's version of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I mean, it's, it's done so nicely and it's, it's a beautiful track. It's, it's certainly a standout moment on the record, um, but it's, it's an easy thing to like. You know, there's a few, you know, um, left field tracks on there, you know, that like, ooh, you know, I don't think my grand's going to want to hear that. Like I put together a playlist for the Warchad Gala dinner event and I'll take tracks off of that. And that's always one of them, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a beautiful thing. And I remember because uh, Jeepster Records put out the record. They put, you know, they, they're, they're the record label for it. And um, in 2000, when we were, you know, 
uh, asking record labels, would they be involved? You know, Jeepster's big signing was Bell and Sebastian. And like, you know, um, you know, and almost, you know, within seconds of meeting them, they go, by the way, you're not getting Bell and Sebastian. If you want to work with us, that's fine. But don't expect Bell and Sebastian to get on board. I'm like, whoa, okay, fine. You know, that's, you know, I would like that to happen, but that's not what I'm here for. So, okay, those are your rules. Those are your rules. Um, and it wasn't until I was begging and begging. I love the Teenage Fan Club. And I was pestering this poor woman named Sophie who worked at, I think, Columbia Records at the time. And, it, well, I got it over the line. You know, they did a track, um, a, a cover version of Gorky's uh Christmas Eve, which is a beautiful track. Anyway, they're in this Glasgow recording studio uh, to do this thing for Jeepster Records for XFM. Um, and they bump into Stuart Murdoch from Bell and Sebastian. And it's like Bell and Sebastian at this time are a very cool band. They were like the J.D. Salingers of pop. They were very cool, but very reclusive, you know, so you didn't hear much of them. And uh, I think Norman from the Teenage Fan Club sees Stuart and goes, oh, no, no. Stuart sees Norman. He goes, what are you guys doing here? I'm like, oh, we're recording a song for your rude word record label, your FN record label. And Stuart's like, oh, really? Uh, You know, well, maybe we should do one as well. And that's how I got um, Bell and Sebastian. Well, I didn't. And thank you, Norman Blake from Teenage Fan Club, you know, to put in a good word. Well, Jim, if people want to go and buy the record, um, as I said at the beginning, um, we'll put um, uh, the, the, the links to do so in the bio of this uh, podcast. Um, what I also do is compile a, a Spotify playlist like I do for every episode with the songs mm-hmm. that you've chosen from this. Um, at the end of that uh, playlist as well, I'll add um, lots of tracks from uh, the record as well. Um, Thank you. Jim, I knew this would be a delight. And... Uh, and and it, and it absolutely was. Um, thank you so much, mate. Have a, have a lovely Christmas and, and all the best for the record, mate. Thanks so much, Stu. I really enjoyed it. I can't believe it's over. I'm like, what? You want to get rid of me already? It's, I could go on forever. But no, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And it's, it's great to, to talk to you and to talk about the, the Christmas album and delving into my past. You know, I, I hope it's of interest to your listeners. So absolutely. thank you for having me. There you go. Jim Benner, what an absolutely lovely human. Knew you'd enjoy that. Knew it'd be a great chat. I'm not going to waffle on anymore um, about uh, how good that episode was. I know that you're still here. I know that you're about to go and click that link in the bio and uh, and go and buy the record. So go do that now. Have a lovely Christmas and soundtrack it with the new record um, available now on different coloured vinyls. Go stream it if you have to. Um, but yeah, Go check out, you know, that and all the other incredible things that War Child do. Thanks ever so much, people. See you soon. Bye-bye. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Eat a pocket.